Um, well, I work for an organisation called XLP. You've heard of XLP, a few people. XLP um, is a youth and community charity that works in the inner city of London, working in schools, working on estates, mentoring kids on the verge of exclusion, trying to get alongside um, the, uh, the guys that are probably on the margins of society. And uh, we do this through a whole range of different interventions. We've got double-decker buses that travel onto people's estates. We live on these estates. We've got music projects, arts projects, mentoring projects. But the whole thing is that we believe that young people in particular aren't a lost generation. We don't think that we should just wipe them off, slag them off, just because they live in a, uh, particularly in a deprived area. We want to work alongside them. As complicated and as hard as it is sometimes, and believe in hope and believe in the sense that they'll be able to achieve. Um, it's really hard work, but it's really amazing at the same time. So if you're interested in anything like that, um, there's a couple of things that you could do. Um, one is we run a gap year for anyone between the ages of 18 and 100. Um, if you want to come down to XLP for a year, hang out with us, work on the estates, go into schools, work with local churches, then um, you can do that. Um, secondly, if you're a youth leader or a young person that's just interested in this type of work, we have open days where you can come and just hang out with us for a day. Um, go Again, go out on the bus, go onto some of the estates, see what's going on. You can get all the information in the XLP stand. And thirdly, um, and really excitingly, um, we are training churches up across the UK um, to run their own mentoring programme. So if you want to say, actually, we can't come to London, but we'd love to do something in our community, or why don't you come and get trained by us to um, start your own mentoring project where you are? It won't be our mentoring project, it's going to be your mentoring project. We just literally, sincerely, want to give away everything that we've learned. And uh, so you can find all that sort of information on the XLP stand. And the last couple of things is, um, I've written a few books. Anyone read any of these books? That'll be... Two people, that's encouraging. No, four, five, six, seven. Oh, great. Um, so, a few books. One's called Conspiracy of the Insignificant, which is the story about how XLP started and all the mistakes um, that we made. Um, Fighting Chance is a book that I actually wrote with a bunch of young people um, who are in gangs and on the edge of gangs, and uh, really tried to tell their story. Um, so, it's quite raw, it's not an easy read, but um, it's very interesting. And thirdly, um, I guess this is my newest book and most honest book as well, called No Seed Into Hope, which is all about trying to bring hope into some of the most desperate areas of, the li of our lives. Um, poverty, homelessness, addiction, even politics. And, uh, and it's hope when things go wrong in your own life as well, when your dad gets cancer and, and uh, things start to go pear-shaped. So do check those out on the stand. That would be cool. Um, I'm one of these speakers, I, I do get to speak quite a lot. Whenever I, I speak quite a lot, I tend to get key words um, 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 and miss it out, and it, it can be a little bit embarrassing for me. So the, um, the other day I was in a church um, in South East London, when I said the other day, it was about 20 years ago, and uh, I was there, and I wanted to do this talk about the uh, early church, and uh, I had my opening line was, the early church had problems with persecution, which they did, but I didn't say that, like, I said, the problem with the early churches, they had major problems with perspiration. <laughs> and you know, it was hot in those days, to be fair, as uh, Mrs. Jones on the front row said to her friend. It was hot, it was hot, Mrs. Jones, good point. And then I, I did this other talk, um, and I wanted to say, and I've been assessed on a talk, how awful is that, you know, that you actually get graded on your talk. And I thought I was doing pretty well, everyone was engaged. And it came to this point, I wanted to say, the most important thing that you must remember, the thing that you must never forget, dramatic pause, everyone's waiting to find out what it is, and I was going to go, prayer, and then sit down, just like that, but that didn't happen to me. I said, the thing that you must never forget, the thing that's going to change the world is, dramatic pause, pears. <laughs> I quite like pears, I think pears are underrated, I think when I was apples get all the credit, uh, I think pears are pretty good. And who likes pears? Anyone who's for pears? Yeah, that's what I think. Pears are good. But my worst one ever, I was out on a date once, and uh, just once, and um, <laughs> it came to that romantic part in the evening, you know, where all the boys speak, <laughs> and all the girls speak, you haven't got a chance. And where I'm gazing into uh, my girlfriend's eyes, now my wife, woohoo! I'm gazing her into her eyes, she's gazing into my eyes, and uh, she, her, her mum had brought me this really, really expensive aftershave. 
So I thought, I know what's going to happen. It's going to get to the romantic part of the evening. I'm going to turn to her and I'm going to say, I've got your mum's aftershave on she bought me. And she's going to be, ah, and then, but then, you know. And uh, so um, it comes up the romantic part of the evening. She's gazing into my eyes. She's, I'm gazing into her eyes. And I have no idea why I say this, but this is a true story. I look at her and went, I've got your mum's lipstick on. <laughs>
And pretty much most weddings that I get to speak at, they always ask me to speak on Corinthians 13. Anyone knows Corinthians 13? It's a famous love passage. But you know what? If we limit those verses to just a marriage relationship, it's a disaster. Of course, it's a great passage to have at a wedding. It's a great passage that talks about selfless love. But actually, it should be lived by all of us. Um, what I tend to do with this, sorry, what I tend to do with this passage is look at it and then try and see if I'm actually living any of this. Let me just read some of it. It says this, love never gives up. Love cares more for others than self. Love doesn't want, doesn't want what it doesn't have. Love doesn't strut. Love doesn't have a swelled head. Love doesn't force itself on others. Love isn't me first. Love doesn't fly off the handle. Love doesn't keep a score of the sins of others. Love doesn't revel when others grovel. Take pleasure in the flower and the truth. Puts up, it puts up with anything. Trust God always. Always looks for the best. Never looks back. But keeps going to the end. And of course the challenge there is if you put your name where it actually says love. Imagine that. Patrick never gives up. Sometimes. Patrick cares more for others than self. Patrick doesn't want what others don't, doesn't have. Patrick doesn't strut. Patrick doesn't have a swelled head. Patrick doesn't force himself on others. Patrick isn't always me first. Patrick doesn't fly off the handle. He doesn't keep a score of wrongs. Patrick doesn't revel when others grovel. Take pleasures in the flower and the truth. Patrick puts up with anything. Patrick trusts God always. Patrick's always looking for the best. Patrick never looks back, but keeps going to the end. It's hugely challenging. You see, our goal is to love. It's to love unconditionally. Love actually is the only thing I think that can carry and that can change the world. It carries a powerful message. So what I want to do, really, really quickly in this session, because I know you've got loads of other talks that you want to get to and loads of other stuff going on, I want to look at two types of love. One, a practical love. What does a life lived by, marked by love actually look like? Who actually lives like that? <laughs> and two, it's prophetic. How do we have actions that actually point to God's coming kingdom? You see, if love is the ultimate goal, then um, we shouldn't just love people in order to try and accept them, um, to get them to accept the Christian faith. We should love them anyway. We're not just loving people in order to win them. We are simply called to love them. Love is the goal. It's love given, love received, love shared, love celebrated. We are called to love unconditionally. Bottom line. Question. Who is the most loving person that you know? Turn to the person beside you and just answer that question. Okay, second question coming up, just keep chatting. What makes them like that? So if you thought of a person who's the most loving person you know, why, why is that true? Keep going, keep going, keep going.
Okay, last question, really quickly, just for you guys to think about. Just so you know, in my seminars, sometimes I just think that if we're not careful, you know, people just sit there and become like sponges, just like, you know, give me loads of information. So actually, part of the aim of today is to try and get you to think as well as listen. I hope that's okay. I know it's a bit early in the morning to do that. Um, but the other question I wanted to ask you, which I think is something I've been really grappling with, is it possible to love everyone? Is that actually possible? Talk to much yourself, just for one more minute. And, uh, and he says to me, you're not going to believe it, 
but um, the lady who's worked with us for a number of years, her son's been killed, murdered, at 2am in the morning. And I just froze. I just couldn't believe it. Because I've, in my sort of youth work career, I've dealt with mums who've lost kids to knife crime before. I've dealt with people that have murdered people. I've gone into maximum security prisons. I've gone and done gang mediation in places of Trench Town in Jamaica, which is one of the gang, um, biggest gang situations in the whole of the world. I've, I've experienced a lot of that sort of stuff. I've been to memorial service, but suddenly a lady that sits in front of me every single day, a lady who I see um, and I count as a very close friend as well as someone who works with me, her son's been killed. He was 16. And it's the anniversary of his death um, in a couple of days' time. I thought, what is this all about? And then, a couple of weeks later, I'm asked to go to Felton Young Offenders um, uh, Unit to speak in chapel. And uh, Felton Young Offenders Unit has 35 gangs within the prison. And what they do is they have 30 kids come into chapel. Um, you do your talk, and then you have another 30 kids come into chapel. Um, the reason they do that is because they have to keep rival gang members apart, even in chapel. And the guy said to me, if it all kicks off while you're preaching, just take a step back and uh, let all the prison guards do what they do. And uh, so I thought, this is a crazy place, you know. And I stood up there to speak, all the guys were there, and then it suddenly dawned on me, there's a really good possibility, I didn't know for certain, that the guy that killed my friend's son is now sitting right in front of me. And I'm talking about love and grace and hope. And there's a moment in my head thinking, I'm not sure I can handle this anymore. Is it possible to love everyone? Um, in my book, No Sin Into Hope, I went to um, Southeast Asia. Um, Southeast Asia is a place where um, you're not allowed to be a Christian. Um, there's the underground church there, there's all these crazy places, um, and people, you know, missionaries doing some amazing stuff. And they wanted me to come to one of their meetings, but they all speak in code language. I didn't know this. So this guy rings me up and he says, um, we need you to come to um, uh, tonight and uh, if you don't mind, we'd like you to do some karaoke. And I'm like, right. And after that, we're going to do some thinking. And I was like, cool. <laughs> and uh, so I go to my gap here, guys. Um, tonight, we're going to be doing some karaoke. And they're like, no, nah, man, I'm not doing karaoke. I don't care. I'm like that. Cultural sensitivity, I've told you about this. I'm not doing karaoke, man, seriously. And, uh, and then we're going to do some thinking. And in the end, we sort of sussed something was going on. And uh, karaoke meant worship, and thinking meant prep. So it was like a big sigh of relief, because us doing karaoke would have been an absolute disaster. And, uh, but we went there, and the reason we went there is because these guys, um, they're working in a rehab, and I am fascinated by this whole thing. Can you live and love without an agenda? And so what they do is they take guys that have been on um, drugs for years and years and years. We actually slept in one of these rehabs. And you see the guys that they basically haven't got any veins left to inject into because they've injected so much. They're literally that some of them have lost limbs, some of them are all scarred up because of the pain and the uh, um, injection of the drugs that they've had over many, many years. These guys have seen serious violence, serious gangs, serious abuse. And in many ways, they're just young people crying out for someone to love them. But like many people, they've looked for love in all the wrong places. So what they do is they take these guys and they pray for them 24 hours a day for 10 days. And it's like, and they say it's like a baby. For the first 10 days, all they want is love. And then after 10 days, they actually come off drugs with no withdrawal symptoms whatsoever, just through prayer. And then when they get to that phase, they sort of turn into the toddler phase, you know, where actually they start rebelling a little bit. And as you are, every parent thinks that love is just a sort of fluffy thing. Sometimes love is putting in boundaries and being tough with people. And, uh, and then they said this. Do you know what? To get someone really free from a big addiction, it takes five to ten years. And I'm thinking to myself, five to ten years? How do you do it? And they said, well, you know, for us, this is our life. We literally invite these guys into our family. And because of the nature of the country that we're in, I can't even tell you the country they're in, um, there's no prayer letters, there's no da-da, look at what we're doing, read our case studies. And I said, how do you do it? And they said to me this, we keep the greatest commandment before the Great Commission, meaning we love Jesus and people first and foremost, before we try and make them disciples. We need to love them without an agenda. We usually love people because we get love in return. 
when someone's not capable of giving us love in return, you've got to love them anyway. And then they said, you know, the thing is, is so often when we work with those that are more disadvantaged than us, we go into rescue mode. You know, here I am to save the day. Here I am to change your life. And actually, we don't want people to get into codependent relationships. We want people with addictions to meet Jesus. And it's about remembering it's only Jesus that can meet their addiction. There was this one woman there called June. Um, she had lived with them for six and a half years. And in the first year of living there, they discovered that June was HIV positive, and their family abandoned her. And they, they helped her for six and a half years, just while I was there, um, just before I arrived actually. Um, she went out, and she had unprotected sex, and she became pregnant, and she had a street abortion. And I was like, ah, how do you cope with that? And again, they said, when it comes to love, there's no heart measures. It's about making yourself totally vulnerable. It's about embracing people in the community that live together, love together, cry together, work together, and are there together, standing with people in their worst nightmares. So the challenge for us is what's your focus growing up? You guys are a lot younger than me, most of you, anyway. What's your focus growing up? Is it going to be on the possessions that we have? Is it going to be on the status? Is it going to be, have all of these things determine your self-worth and what you think about yourself? Or why are you going to commit yourself to something different? I love this quote. Check this out. It says this. What is it worth to follow Jesus? How far is too far when he stretched out his arms on the cross and went that far? Do you want the adventure of living or would you prefer the safety of existing? Aren't you itching for a deeper and more raw expression of following Jesus? Are we meant to be dangerous people, wide-eyed radicals, dreamers of the day? What does radical living look like in the 21st century? Or shall I just resign myself to a safe, centralised, respectable, middle-class Christianity? No. How do we love people? Well, the first thing we do is we don't judge them. I want you to look at this little advert now. Um, this is my favourite little advert around at the moment. Um, if you can't see the screen, you might want to just shift forward and check this out. This is really good. I saw that, but basically, um, there's a young guy there in a hoodie, stereotype young guy, as most young people are portrayed in the media these days, and uh, he's got a spray can, and they must think he's a typical guy, up to um, no good. And then he goes into um, what, in the end, we find out as a hospital where his kid sister's laying in bed, and, uh, and he nicks a vase, and you're sort of thinking, oh, typical young person. And then um, he opens the um, curtain to the window uh, where she's staying. And he's sprayed in the wall, um, be brave. And you realise that actually, um, maybe, maybe you shouldn't have done that, um, it's actually about compassion. It was about wanting to actually see his kid sister succeed. And so often it feels like what we do is we judge people. And what I found out is when you get to know people as individuals, and their lives are so different, true understanding always changes your perspective. 
because everyone is made in the image of God. Sometimes in this country we define success by numbers. How many people did you get to the seminar? How many people did this? How many people went forward to the front? In a lot of other countries that I work, they define success by relationship. And that's the key thing. Um, I'm going to invite um, Jenny um, um, up. Jenny's uh, one of our Gap Year students. Give her a little ripple of applause. Jenny is from Liverpool, so we've prayed for her, and uh, she's okay. And uh, tell us a little bit, how was your gap year? Tell us a bit about your gap year. Yeah, um, so I did the XLT gap year starting this September. Um, it's been a really challenging year, but really learned a lot and really loved it. Fantastic. And during your year, was there a young person that you got to know who, you know, we, you, know you hear about me rattling on about love everyone. Was there someone that actually, in reality, that was pretty hard to do, and what happened? So, um, we talked a bit about running a mentor scheme, and I mentor a person in one um, high school in East London, and when I met her, I was given a referral, she was just a name on a piece of paper, and the lady who runs the referral unit, she said to me, you're a Christian, right? I was like, yeah, yeah, I am, and she said, well, you better start praying, and so when I met this girl, she had a 30, was it 30? Around 30% attendance into school. If she did turn up to school, she wouldn't go to her lessons. And if she did go to her lessons, she would sit in the doorway of a classroom and she would sing. And when I asked her why she'd do this, she said, because I can't learn. And if I can't learn, I don't want anyone else to learn. And for me, this was really hard. I wasn't always excited about going into lessons. And I would wake up on a Tuesday morning and think, what am I going to have to face this morning? And I remember one morning I walked in and she ran up to me in the corridor and she was like, Jen, Jen, I'm on report. And I was like, that's not a good thing. Um, and she turned to me and she was like, no, look. And she opened up her report and the one lesson that she struggled with was English. And in her English box where she'd had the lesson, it said, Brittany has had a really good lesson today. And for her, that meant the world. And that meant the world to me. And then there was a bit of hope in that situation was just really incredible. And so loving that kid, have you seen many other changes, tiny changes that you've seen in her over the year? Yeah, so before I left, um, she actually got made what they call student librarian. For most young people, that's a bit geeky, but for the, actually, for a member of staff to see in this kid responsibility and change and give her a role that she can actually engage with in the school is more important to her than a lot of other stuff that's been on in that school. Fantastic. And this whole thing about, and we're going to talk about this a bit later, about loving people, but also like doing prophetic things that speak into issues. You've got a few issues, haven't you, that you want to really dedicate your life to. Just tell us a little bit about one of them. Okay, so one thing that I am hugely passionate about is working with young girls. And I heard a statistic lately that 80% of the world's slaves are women, and 40% of them are under 16. And actually that 40% are slavery in the sex trade. And for me, the fact that a girl under 16 who is sold for sex is sold for less than £2 a day. And that's not even in the world, that's not our own country that's going on. And for me, that is just not acceptable because Jesus hung out with the poor and we're okay to give our money as a church to that. And Jesus fed the hungry and we're okay to give them food. But actually, Jesus' best friend was a prostitute. And actually, as a church, we can kick up our heels and we can make something of this. And if Who's in a better position to show these people love and to show that they are valued than people who know the love of God? Jen, you're brilliant. Um, give her a round of applause. <laughs> Showing love to people sometimes is about hearing their story. This is a girl called Natalie. Um, Natalie's brother died of meningitis, and, uh, and as a result, she was drinking an awful a lot. And uh, her mum actually has serious mental health issues. And the year before her brother died, her dad also left. And so Natalie, um, she started putting on weight. Um, she was unemployed for a long period of time. And she still has her issues. But again, we got her a mentor. We got her a mentor who was willing to stick by her. And what we say to our mentors is, you know, it's two hours a week, at least for 12 months. And if you get involved in their lives, and you, you know, if you're not meeting, you're texting each other, you're wanting to commit yourself to someone else. And uh, Natalie, in the end, we managed to get her a job at Barclays Bank as an apprentice. 
And uh, the other day, um, I, I got to know the CEO of Barclays, and we did an event on the 31st floor of Barclays Bank in Canary Wharf. And we got the CEO of Barclays to interview Natalie. And it was an amazing experience where he said, yeah, tell us Natalie about your life. And she said, you know, I was completely lost. I was drinking. I was doing this. And then he said to her, so what are you doing now? And she said, uh, uh, well, I work for you now. And uh, in fact, he goes, well, how's that going for you? She goes, well, yeah, I just got cashier of the month for the last two months. And, uh, and she said, you know, I always wanted to be a model so that the world would tell me that I'm beautiful. I no longer need to be a model because working with XLP has helped me see beauty in myself. And, uh, and then she turned to him and went, and, and by the way, I'm after your job. <laughs> and uh, which I thought was a nice touch. But again, it's just love it. And to be honest, um, Natalie, um, she's still got challenges. She's still got stuff she's going through. Um, in fact, if she didn't have the job, her mum's just lost her disability allowance, which means she would be homeless. Um, the next photo is of a girl called Leanne. Um, Leanne, again, um, angry young lady, um, again, drinking an awful too much, um, mum, alcoholic, kid sister, 12. So again, a lot of people, and to be honest, I'm a bit like this sometimes, when I meet some of our young people, I'm like, for heaven's sake, why can't you just get anywhere on time? And there's two reasons like that. One of them are lazy. <laughs> but the other one is, is actually there is stuff going on in their lives at home. So Leanne does so much to care for her 12-year-old sister because her mum's an alcoholic. And so one of our guys took her on a modelling shoot, you know, um, where they um, talk about self-esteem, and she just wouldn't smile. And the whole time they were like, you've got to get this kid to smile, what's wrong with her? And, uh, and so what our guy did is he literally taught her to smile because she hadn't smiled, and now she's actually got a beautiful smile. I think we judge people, we stand on the sidelines instead of trying to understand why their lives are a mess. We offer excuses and to why we can't get involved. A friend of mine said this, this is where the love comes in, I think. It's this, it's showing up. It's showing up day after day after day. It's putting one foot in front of the other and slogging it out. In fact, we talk about this word called compassion. You know, compassion has two meanings in the Latin. One means com, i.e. companion. Passion, meaning the passion of the Christ. So to have compassion is not merely to feel sorry for people, to get a bit emotional at the end of a TV documentary, Compassion means this, to make your pain my pain. To make your pain my pain. So the question then is who is our neighbour? Who is our neighbour? I want to show you another clip now. This is a clip um, basically in London where we work. This is about our mentoring programme. This is about getting alongside vulnerable people and trying to see a change in their lives. Check this out. In our society, we often have a very negative picture of young people. We say they're addicted, they're out of control, they're just a lost generation. And if we're not careful, we stereotype them instead of getting to know them as individuals. And even sometimes when the behaviour matches the stereotype, there's undoubtedly a reason why. What our young people need is not to be written off, they need people to work with them. Across the UK, in villages, in towns and cities, many young people are struggling. They're struggling for a whole host of reasons. Maybe mum and dad are split up, they've been bullied at school, there's been a bereavement in the family, they're suffering because of poor living conditions. When we looked at some of the challenges that young people are facing, we wanted to work out how do we do things not only for young people, but with young people. We didn't want to parachute into their communities, make loads of assumptions about their lives, and leave again. So we started XL Mentoring. We recruited mentors from the local community who we would train. They would spend two hours a week for a minimum period of 12 months mentoring a young person. And the results have been incredible, both for the mentor and the mentees. Basically, he was having problems focusing in school, not doing his homework, he was disturbing the class. It felt like I was doing something wrong, I was just losing my patience with him. Since Nathan's come on the scene, he's become a lot more focused. Reese looks forward to spending that one-to-one -one time with somebody different other than mum or dad. It makes it more exciting for him 
you can see how he's um, enjoying learning, whereas before he wasn't. The main thing uh, that I do with beats in the mentoring is uh, mainly tuition, like math and English, and also think about some of the aspects of his life which he's having problems with. My mentor means a lot because it helps all out my anger problems at school and my grades have gone up since then. I think people should be a mentor because it helps children and mums and dads. I've been regularly going to the church and a volunteer to cook for the night shelter and it's um, improving my social life as well. Before I started XLP mentoring, I kept my distance from people. I had built up anger and just didn't speak to anybody. When I first met Kyla, she was very quiet. She'd fly off the handle easily. And I think just through talking to her and just being there for her, I think that's helped her a lot. I felt more comfortable and more positive about myself to go out and do better things. They just need somebody to talk to, somebody who will listen to them and not prejudge them and just be there for them. She's like a best friend. She's loving, she's caring, and she's like someone I can turn to. Excel Mentoring works really well in two particular ways. First of all, they are helping young people to be mentored. And that's a fantastic thing. And so as a church, we would love to support Excel Mentoring to be able to do that. But secondly, actually as, as part of our vision as a church, we're trying to connect with people in the very margins of society. And Excel Mentoring enables us to break that, that goal. I've been doing youth and community work for the last 22 years. In that time, I've worked with some amazing young people who have faced the most incredible challenges. Kids who've been in gangs, kids that have been abused, kids that have fallen out of school. But some of those young people have got through them. And when I asked them, how did you get through those challenges? They said, you know what, there was this one individual who believed in me. This one individual who I spent time with week on week on week, who didn't give up on me, who saw something in me I couldn't see in myself. My challenge to you is, could you be that person? sisters, family or relatives eke out a miserable existence in poverty? Would you let them go hungry? And yet every 3.6 seconds someone dies of hunger and three quarters of these children are under five. If we realised we're a family, we wouldn't let this happen to our brothers and sisters. And we haven't got much time, but I would want to challenge you and just, in, even in this seminar, in the last ten minutes, could you be asking God, while you're sitting there, God, what is a practical way that I can show love to my community. And when we talk about love, we're not talking about some soppy, fuzzy, warm, sort of gooey sort of feeling, no, there's nothing wrong with that. We're talking about what love that actually is going to change someone's life. What is it that God could actually call you to do? The second thing we really need to be involved in as Christians is actually showing love to the community and the world in a prophetic way. Who's heard of a guy called Dietrich Bonhoeffer? Dietrich Bonhoeffer, for you know, um, for those who don't know, he's a bit of a hero of mine. And basically, he was around in the Second World War. Hitler's aim was to crush the Jews. And you know, the reality is, is Hitler thought that God was on his side. That's what Hitler actually thought. And what did the, um, a lot of the German churches do? They just fell into line. They agreed with what Hitler was doing. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said this, we're not here to simply bandage the wounds of victims beneath the wheels of injustice. We are here to drive a spoke in the wheel itself. Just check this last little video clip out of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. position in New York City and returned on the last ship to Germany. He astounded prominent theologians with his passionate intellect. 
Now, Hitler viewed him as a threat. He was banned from Berlin, forbidden to speak, write, or publish. He wore the mask of a patriotic pastor that became a double agent. In the Abwehr Intelligence Agency, he traveled to Norway, Sweden, and Switzerland. He used his ecumenical contacts to sabotage Nazi war strategies and smuggle German Jews to Switzerland. But the Gestapo uncovered the smuggling activity, and Hitler discovered his assassination plot. Weeks before the inevitable fall of the Third Reich, Bonhoeffer and other Abwehr conspirators were executed by Hitler's direct command. As Dietrich was ordered to follow the guards, he pulled the fellow prisoner aside and said, This is the end. For me, the beginning of life. Bonhoeffer, um, he didn't just make a political decision, he made a theological decision. He decided he could not stand back and say nothing and do nothing. And because of the stand that he made, he ended up sacrificing his life. He said a human being's moral integrity begins what he's prepared to sacrifice his life for his convictions. And so my question for you guys is, and we won't have time to answer these now, but a couple of questions, is what are the issues over which it's uh, appropriate, even imperative, for Christians to risk their lives today? What's worth risking your life for? The Occupy movement, anyone see that? Um, that was fascinating, that's just down the road from our office. In a standoff between the establishment and those protesting against it, where does the church stand? Where should the church stand? What are some of the issues the Holy Spirit may be asking you to make a stand about? What are the issues for your generation that you should be standing up against? Is it slavery, like Jenny was talking about? Is it poverty? Is it the situation in Syria? Environment, consumerism, debt, fair trade. What is God asking us? to do, to show a life of love. I often try and think of it in these terms. I try and think, is there opportunities in my personal life to reach out to someone in my community? Is there an opportunity in my local community? Four people got stabbed outside my kid's school two weeks ago. I heard it all happen. What can I do about that situation? What's going on in my city? Is God calling me to do anything? What's going on globally as well? There's a theologian called Walter Brigham. great name. Walter Brigham said this, The role of the prophet is twofold, to evoke grief and create amazement. Grief for what has been lost and amazement for the new worlds that are possible. Um, when I moved to Peckham, um, I read a lot about the civil rights movement and uh, I was fascinated by the whole thing. Um, black history in my school was taught appallingly bad. And uh, so I wanted to find out a little bit more about some of the situations of the people that I was working with and living with and, uh, and, uh, and doing stuff with. And you know, if you go on YouTube, you see some of these incredible marches. And you see these people there, they're holding hands. And um, they're going to march. They're going to march for justice. And then you look ahead, and not far in front of them, there are dogs um, that are going to be used against them. There are fire engines. There are police. And there's a part of you that thinks... Why march? Surely you know you're going to take an absolute hammering. Why do it? And then you see them, they start to march. And the police come and the uh, firemen come. And you see these crazy scenes of people literally being knocked across the street. And the thing I found incredibly moving is these people are trying to make a difference. And I'm guessing there's people here, you've tried to make a difference. But sometimes it doesn't go very well. In fact, in my life, it often goes the opposite. And, uh, but they try to make a difference, but you know what? Is when they got knocked down, they didn't stay knocked down, they picked themselves up, they brushed themselves down, and they went again. And why did they do it? Why? Question, why? Use your brain, why? Well, the reason they did it was this, is they found a cause they're willing to commit themselves to. They wanted justice, not just for their generation, but justice for a generation to come. They had a cause. And you know, I know doing this work, and I know this isn't the most cheerful way to finish a talk, sometimes it does involve suffering, sometimes it does involve making yourself uncomfortable. But the key is, as the church that loves Jesus Christ, we should grab our mate's hand. You should grab your youth group's hand. You should grab someone's hand. You should pick yourself up. You should brush yourself down and say, you know what? 
I've got a cause that I believe in. I've got a cause that I'm willing to go for. I want to pray, um, and I want you to think about three things. Um, I want you to think, one, just as I pray, that I'm going to pray that maybe God puts into your mind a person who you need to make a stand for. Secondly, um, it might not be a person, it may be a situation. It may be, a, it may be Palestine, peace in Palestine, it may be a country in the world, it may be somewhere um, that you know something's kicking off. Or thirdly, it may be a place. XLP, we do a lot of work in Ghana in West Africa, we've got a school over there. We're passionate about seeing that succeed. But what I'd love you to do is just before we go, I just want you to think, so is there a place that God's asking me to go? And, uh, and what I'd like you to do, something that's a bit brave and not very self-survival-like in some ways, is if you're brave enough, get Twitter and put, I'm standing for, and put that person's name. Or put the, per the place, I'm standing for peace in Palestine. Put SSA13, I'm standing for Ghana, I'm standing for Liverpool, I'm someone has to. I'm standing for London, I'm standing for Peckham, I'm standing. Do something that reminds you of actually this just wasn't another talk. Or write it, text it to your friend, text it to someone saying, I feel that God's asking me to do this.